1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, I was uh, speaking to a couple uh, several weeks ago, and they said, you know, I, I think we're going to be in here for about 24 hours of 1 John, and I had to disappoint them. There's only about 14 or so, but uh, we are finally at the end of 1 John, and I, I was uh, trying to figure out what, where we're going to go next. And I thought, well, 2 John comes next, so maybe we'll do 2 John and I thought, well, there's only one chapter there. So, I mean, if, if it took us fi- uh, 15 weeks to get through five, then uh, maybe uh, maybe less than that to get through uh, one chapter. Second and third John get through those two. Uh, we'll see where, where we end up uh, with all of that. First John chapter 5 and verse 13. You might have picked up a pattern as we were reading through it. We see uh, several times the, the word we know, or the phrase we know, we know that this, we know that this. And, and so I figured when the scripture outlines itself, uh, it's a whole lot easier for you when you're having to make a message and, and, it's, uh, and the scripture says, this is it right here, make, there's the outline. And I always appreciate it when I see those things. So we're going to look at those things. We, last week, we actually looked at the first of these, of these things that we know. And the whole, the whole first part of the passage was about the first thing that we know, and that's I know who Jesus is. I, I have the identity of Jesus down. Not that Jesus was a man, not that he actually existed, but I know who Jesus actually is. Uh, not just a person who lived and walked on the earth, not just someone who had great teachings, not just someone who did a lot of nice stuff for people, but someone uh, who was who he claimed to be. He is God. He is the Son of God. And by getting that uh, down, by having that understanding, there are other things that I, I have because of that. And so last week we looked at uh, four or five things that we have because we know who Jesus is. Also, based on that fact, because I know who Jesus is, uh, there are seven other things that John kind of concludes the entire book with these seven things. A lot of them seem to uh, point back to some things that we studied in previous chapters. And so this kind of seems like a year-end review uh, back in school, you know, as you got towards the end and you knew that the final was coming up and the teacher might have taken a, a day or two and, and just said, all right, let's, let's review everything that we've learned over the past year. John seems to do that with his letter as he finishes it up, maybe towards the end of his life, maybe didn't think about, uh, will I be writing to these people again? And so he just tries to real nail home some of these, these important facts as we will get into them. So John concludes with seven things that we know because we know that Jesus is the Son of God. So real simply in our outline here, because I know Jesus, I know, and then we'll just go through our list. Number one, because I know Jesus, I know that I have eternal life. We back up into verse 11 and we see that John is saying, this is the record or this is the testimony that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Very simply, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It doesn't get any simpler than that. This is from God Himself. What do you do to get eternal life? God says, you have the Son, you have life. You don't have to wonder about it. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. You don't have to wonder about that either. You don't have to try to find another way. All you got to do is find the Son. Because in Him, you will find eternal life. But John says this in verse number 13. He continues the thought. And we left off in verse 12 last Sunday, but the thought is continued into verse 13. These things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's saying, I'm writing to you, Christians, you people who believe on the name of the Son of God. I've written these things to you. Why? 
that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You believe on the name of the Son of God. You believe in Jesus. You know who Jesus is, and you put your faith in him. He says, so now I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know not only who Jesus is, but that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. John wrote this to those who already believe on Jesus so that they may be certain of the eternal life which is only found in Jesus. And several times as I was writing this message, I had to remind myself that we're not talking to 21st century Americans. We're not talking to people that live in this day and age that we we take for granted all of the things that the people in in, in Ephesus during this first century church uh, wouldn't have taken for granted. Remember, there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of other voices going out there about, is Jesus who he claims to be? There were a lot of people out there saying, well, Jesus is good. at He's a starter level to get to God, but there's so much more above that. There's 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 more advanced, if you will. There's there's something much uh, a much higher philosophical plane than just Jesus. I mean, that's so simple. It's so easy. It's so unsophisticated. And yet there and there were people that were pulling them away from Christ. And and, and we saw in previous chapters that there were uh, those among the flock, among the church, who were deceiving and pulling others out, eventually they would leave the church themselves and no doubt dragging some with them. And John has spent five chapters, a lot of time, talking about Christ, talking about it's only Jesus, it's only Jesus, and, and, and all the other, uh, the other things that are out there that people are trying to use to pull you away from Christ are lies, and, and, and there's no truth there. He says, in Him is eternal life. If you found Jesus, put yourself in the first century church and you heard the story of Jesus and maybe you saw him or at least you were a generation away from those who knew him. Uh, and, and so you know people who physically put their eyes on him and physically maybe even touched him. Maybe some in your church, if this was the first century church, some would be sitting in here going, he healed me. I was one of the blind people he healed or I was one of the, the lame people that couldn't walk or that was my dad, or that was someone that I knew from my hometown. I watched him come through my hometown. It's real, folks. I was one of the 500 that he uh, appeared to after his resurrection. He's real. And so maybe that's you, and you're sitting there going, okay, I think, I think that Jesus is the, is the true God. I'm pretty sure he was, and I put my faith in him. But now all these really smart people all around me are starting to second-guess it, and, and it's making me wonder, who am I to think that I'm smarter than so-and-so because he's got more degrees than I do. He's, got, he's, got, he's written books, and, and, and this person's a, a, an accomplished a circuit a speaker, and, 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 and everybody wants to hear what he says, and he says something different than what I believed. And, and who am I? I'm just a, re- I'm just a regular, regular guy. And how am I? Why should I disagree with that person? And John's going, listen, if you have Jesus, you've got it all. You've got everything that you need if you have Jesus. Christ, you have eternal life, and I want you to know that. We use this verse a lot to, to help people as they, as they begin their journey with Christ and what we call the assurance of salvation, that you are saved. If you have Christ, you can know for sure. Have you ever talked to somebody about heaven or about being a Christian and say, do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven or some, some facsimile of that, of that question? Uh, and there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, I don't think you really can know. 
you know, I think you're just going to have to eventually one of these days you're going to you're going to find out. And, and uh, I mean, all of life is pretty much just a gamble. And and, uh, you know, make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds or make sure you go to church enough or make sure you don't kill anybody or give enough money to charity or whatever it may be. And then hopefully and, and prayerfully, we're going to get to heaven and stand before God and he'll say, congratulations, you made it. But we won't know until then. But first John 513 tells me something very different. He says right now I can know that I have eternal life. And not that I will have eternal life. I know that I currently, presently have eternal life through Jesus. I don't have to keep looking. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus was speaking and He said, I come that they may have life and that they have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I've come to bring life. I've come to give you that eternal life abundant life, and folks, that started already. That doesn't start one day. I seem to have been saying this for several weeks now in both the morning and the evening Bible studies, but eternal life doesn't start when you get to heaven. We're not, we're not waiting until now. It's like, it's, it's, it's like, we're, like we wait for Christmas. You ever, you ever get to Christmas and you're like, I think I had more fun waiting for Christmas and anticipating Christmas, and then Christmas is a bit of a letdown because at least in my house it takes about five minutes, you know? Uh, we, we get through presents. We, we, we get down to business, okay? I mean, we, or Thanksgiving, you know, you, you think about Thanksgiving and all that thing, and then, you, and then after one plate, it, that's disappointing, isn't it? Anybody only get through one plate of food at Thanksgiving and you were kind of disappointed in yourself? Or, I mean, you didn't have any more endurance than that. And, and you're like, man, I had it my built up in my head. I was going to have this huge feast. And then that's it. That's all I had. Man, you know? Uh, that's, that's what I think a lot of people feel like heaven. Uh, subconsciously, like, oh yeah, when we get to heaven, we're going to do this and this, it's going to be awesome, and we're going to be with Jesus, and, and it's going to be perfect. And I wonder if uh, you're missing out on what, it, what you have in Christ because you're waiting, waiting, waiting. It's like, man, you could have had it all. You can have it right now. I'm not talking about the perfect body. I'm not talking about all the, the freedom from ailments and freedom from sin. I'm not talking about those things, but the relationship with Christ, that's available now. The, the walk and the, and the fellowship, that's available now. The living in heaven on earth is available now. It doesn't have to be, oh, one day it's going to, it will be worth it all, because right now it's awful. No, it could be great now because of Jesus. We have eternal life, and we know that we have eternal life. Number two, verses 14 and 15 tell me, because I know Jesus, I know that God hears me when I ask, or pray according to His will. And here's a couple of verses here that as I knew that I was coming to this passage here, I was kind of curious. I was like, okay, what are we going to do here when we get to this? Because these are a couple of curious verses right here. And, and I'll just tell you right off the front, I'll give you, I'll give you a little uh, uh, an asterisk here. I don't know that I've got everything that there is to get out of this verse, but I'm going to uh, give you what, 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 I, what I do believe uh, is saying, at least partially what he's saying there. These are some very confusing verses to a lot of people because they miss a very important phrase in the verse. Look, read verse 14. It says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That's great. And notice what it keeps saying. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. So right now, I say, if I, if I, if I get to, if I know that God always hears my prayers, and whatever I ask, He's going to give me. And so I get on my knees and I pray, dear Jesus, uh, I want a Corvette for Christmas. 
Or, dear, dear, dear Lord, uh, you know that I want, and fill in the blank, I want a raise at work. I want to get a $500 an hour raise. Or I need this. Or, or okay, yeah, that's pie in the sky. So I'm not going to, I'm going to ask for something realistic. So, you know, Jesus, uh, would you uh, heal my grandma? That's not even selfish. That's a great thing. And then sometimes we get that answer to prayer. And we say, oh, God is good because he answered my prayer. But what happens the rest of the time, and often it's the majority of the time, when the thing that I asked for doesn't get answered. I asked for that raise at work, or I asked for God to strike that enemy of mine with lightning, and, uh, and, or whatever it may be, and it didn't happen. I say, well, what happened? I, I thought that whatever I ask, He's going to hear me, and He's going to answer me. There's a phrase in there, though, that we read it, but we overlook it. And that phrase is, according to His will. Look at the verse again in verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything, and I underlined it, according to His will. That's the, the, the one qualifier there that I can ask anything that God already wants. And God will hear me. He says it again in the next verse. And if we know that we hear us, that He hears whatsoever we ask, so, so we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. Now, if we isolate that verse, it makes, it makes it even sound better for us. I can get whatever I want out of God, and I know of a certainty. And doesn't that, doesn't that harm people's faith then when they misunderstand what the Scriptures are telling us? If I walk away thinking God's going to give me whatever I want because He's more like a genie now, because I know that I have eternal life, I know that I have Jesus, and therefore I know that He will hear me and answer me and give me anything I want. And then when it doesn't happen, I go, what happened? I begin to read books or listen to people and, well, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't squint your eyes hard enough. You didn't say, in Jesus' name, amen, when you finish the prayer. You didn't believe enough. You didn't, uh, maybe God didn't hear you. You didn't pray hard enough. You didn't ask long enough. And, and God's just stringing you along. And Maybe it's because that one phrase there didn't click. According to His will. Asking according to the Father's will. I'm confident, and this is really number two and number three in our, in our list here, I'm confident that God hears me when I pray the right things. I've, I wrote in your notes, you can look at it, John 11, uh, Jesus was praying, this is right before He was going to heal Lazarus. And He was standing outside of the grave, uh, of the tomb, and there are people all around, and Jesus begins to pray, and He prays out loud. And He says in there, I thank You, Father, that You always hear me. Always. Jesus prayed with the confidence that God would always hear him when he prayed. That's an important thing because sometimes, let's be honest, it feels like God's not near when I pray. It feels like God's not hearing me. And God, are you out there? It seems so far away. It feels so distant. And that verse right there reminds me that God always hears me when I pray according to his will. So if it seems that God is far away, it could be a couple of things. One, it could be that it's just me feeling that way my feelings that change often, or it could be that I'm not praying according to God's will. Maybe it's not God's will that he strikes so-and-so with lightning and, and knock them dead right then and there. Maybe it's not God's will you get a, a raise at work. Maybe it's God's will that the exact opposite happens, and that's happened to us. Maybe it's not God's will that so-and-so gets healed of the ailment, of the disease that they have, because maybe it's in his plan to work it out another way. Maybe it is God's will to raise someone back to health. Maybe it's his will for them to go to heaven. Maybe it's God's will for you to get that house that you wanted. 
maybe it's His will for you to stay put for a little while. We don't really know the Father's will. But we do know that when we ask and the things that are according to His will, two things happen. He hears us. And He answers us. Now God has told me several things in His Word, and we're not going to get into that this morning. There is a lengthy list of what God says, this is what I want to see happen. Pray for this, and it will happen. Part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. As I pray, Jesus said, let me teach you how to pray. Pray for the Father's will to happen. Pray for what God wants. And as I study the Word of God and I find out, this is what God wants, I'm going to pray for those things. He said to pray for the pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into His harvest. I'm going to pray for more people to go out and reach people for Christ. I'm going to pray that God's will would be done. And there's a list. And there's and, and an interesting study, if you've ever tried to figure out something you want to study, what does God want me to pray for? Because He tells me to talk to Him. He tells me what to say to Him. If I would pray those things, and God says, that's what, that's what I want to do. Let's do it. And I'm getting involved. Now, God wants those things anyways. But God lets me participate in His divine plans. It's kind of like letting a four-year-old help you wash the car. You don't need His help. But if you're a, a parent that does that, what are you doing? You're letting that kid feel awful special, even though you know it might take you a little bit more time. You're going to have to go back and clean up all the areas that he washed. Uh, or you're going to have to just kind of slow down, and you could, you could get it done faster than that. But you're letting that person, because you want to spend time with that person, because you want to help him to draw close to you. And so you work together and you allow that child to do the task with you that you could probably have done a lot faster on your own. And the truth is, God could do whatever he wanted to do without our help, but he allows us to get involved and partner with him. And he says, hey, pray these things and ask me to do the things that I already want to do. But it will show you how powerful I am. It will align your heart with my heart. It will align your wishes and your priorities with heavenly and perfect priorities that are mine. And you'll begin to grow. And you'll begin to grow in me and grow closer to me. And so God hears me when I pray according to his will. But I want you to notice that he gives us a very curious example here. In verse uh, 15, uh, he begins this idea uh, well, all the way down through verse 16 and uh, 17 of a prayer request. This, is, this was one of the other parts I got to, and I got, what, what, what are you saying here? God hears me, this is, and this is the overall thing that I need to make sure I understand. God hears me when I show concern for my Christian family, and He answers my prayers. Look at the verse now, verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask. Now, he was just talking about this, that we know that he hears me, and if I ask according to his will, I'll receive the thing that I ask. So now he says, if I see a brother sin, a sin that is not unto death, then I will ask, and he will give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. What in the world are you talking about here? You know, what, what, and, and you know, I thought, okay, well, someone knows, so I'm starting to read these commentaries and figure out what exactly. Song. And you know what I found out? Nobody knows what he's talking about. That's one of those deep parts of scripture that everybody thinks, all right, this is what it means, and then and then they're like, but I'm not really sure what it means either. Or you know what? I, what I love is if you ever read commentaries, 
Sometimes these guys skip verses that they're not really sure what they mean. They just skip them. How can you call that a commentary? I'm reading this to find out what it meant, and you're supposed to be smarter than me. And uh, they, these guys, they just skip over it and uh, leave, us, uh, leave us to figure it out for ourselves. God's, God hears me when I show concern for my Christian family and answers my prayers. He talks about here, if I pray for him who sins a sin that doesn't lead to death, God will give life. But he says, don't pray for him who has sinned a sin that does lead to death. So the natural reaction, the natural response is, what is the sin that leads to death? What is the sin unto death? And the Bible doesn't tell us. What in the world? What was it there for? Where, where, you know, where's, do a search. You know, what's the sin that leads to death? I, I don't know. What a lot of people think, what I kind of think, that uh, he's, he's referring to what we would call the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. If you want to take your Bible with me, and let's go to Ma- Matthew chapter 12, and uh, leave your place in 1 John chapter 5. This is, uh, this is what I think that uh, it, could, it is referring to. But uh, if you think it's something else, and that's fine. Mark chapter 3 as well, as, as uh, we see a little bit more about it. Jesus is speaking here. And I think is that if you if you give me a, give me an ear, I'll, I'll help it to make a little bit of sense of what he's what he's saying here. But let's we, what what we have to be careful is that we don't dive too deep down into this rabbit hole and we forget what he was talking about in First John, anyways. John was talking about prayer, and he was talking about the things that we can know for sure. So we keep that in mind as we uh, carefully tread into uh, what, what could be a brand new topic. Matthew chapter twelve, and uh, and and if you first thirty one is where we'll, we'll uh, where I wrote the notes here, but if, if the Prior to this is what's going on is that Jesus had just healed somebody. He had actually cast out a demon. And the Pharisees had said in verse number uh, 20, 24 and 25, that, uh, he, he did this because of the power of Satan. He, he did this through the power of Satan. And Jesus knew that they were thinking these things. And so he, he says the famous verse about every uh, house divided against itself can't stand and a kingdom divided against itself be brought to desolation, all those things. So this can't, I can't do this by Satan because... That would be a conflict of interest, if you will. And so he said, he begins to say in verse 28 that he says, If I cast out uh, devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. Uh, and it, so we pick up in verse number 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, I'm going to just turn over to Mark because his, his account gives just a, a detail or two more. Let me say he said in verse number uh, 28, Mark, 30, uh, Mark 3, 28, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And the verse 30, if you got it there, that this is a key part is because they said he hath an unclean spirit. What Jesus is saying here, he's speaking, he's, he's, he's speaking to a crowd about the Pharisees who was a part of that crowd. They had said that he had healed this man of the demon through an unclean spirit. And Jesus said, listen, aside from the fact that a kingdom of divided itself, a house divided itself, uh, divided against itself can't stand. Here's, here's the thing. You want to blaspheme the Son of Man? That'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, if you blaspheme the Spirit of God, 
that will not be forgiven. Okay, I think I got that. Then I begin to look at that. What does it mean to blaspheme the Spirit of God? Well, the word blaspheme there is not to say a, not to say a curse word. It's not, not just saying, you know, I, uh, one Bible teacher, I said, well, you know how all curse words uh, basically swear against Jesus, but nobody swears against the Holy Ghost. But if you were to say a swear against the Holy Ghost, then you could never be saved. And I thought, that uh, doesn't sound right. That sounds a little bit like a magical spell that automatically damns you to hell. I don't think that's exactly true. So we begin to look at that a little bit more carefully. Blaspheming means to speak against or to contradict what the other person has said. And so by blaspheming the Spirit of God, I am contradicting or speaking against the Spirit of God. What does the Spirit of God say? Well, we've spent many weeks looking at what the Spirit of God says. The Spirit of God testifies as late as what we looked at, 1 John 5, 6-10, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so by contradicting or by blaspheming the Spirit of God, I am rejecting what the Spirit says and saying something else. And the Spirit says, Jesus is the Son of God, and and. If I'm going to blaspheme that, I'm going to say Jesus is not the Son of God. There is another way to eternal life that we saw of several verses where the Spirit testifies of Christ. He speaks nothing of Himself. He speaks only of Jesus. And He emphasizes and reconfirms and affirms what Jesus said is true. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. And so if I'm going to blaspheme what the Spirit says, I'm going to say there must be another way. He's not the only way. Or He's not the way at all. There's another way. And that's what Jesus was saying. That's the unpardonable sin. That's the sin that will never be forgiven is the sin of rejecting Christ. Now, what does it mean to forgive? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Rejecting Jesus as God is the sin that will not be forgiven. To forgive means to realize, oh, if I'm going to forgive Cliff, That is me acknowledging Cliff is guilty, but letting it go. I'm going to forgive you. You know, you splashed my tires, Cliff. I forgive you. He doesn't have any consequences now because I forgave him. Now, here's the the difference. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. Why? Because He paid the debt. But if I do it outside of Christ, if I circumvent Christ, and I come to God wanting forgiveness, is there forgiveness? No, there is no forgiveness outside of Christ because the only reason that God gave me is because the debt was satisfied through Christ. God didn't say, well, eh, it's okay. I'll let this go. I'm a loving God. I'll let it go. No, the only reason that you and I sit here forgiven is not because God said, ah, you're pretty lovable. I'll let you get off the hook. And he said, no, it was, your debt was satisfied at the cross. As we're saying about at the cross, it was satisfied. Now, pull all that over to 1 John 5, and John says, if you see a brother that is sinning a sin unto death that leads to death, what I believe is the unpardonable sin, John says, don't pray for him. Don't ask God to forgive someone who rejects Jesus. Don't ask God to say, well, God, I know they rejected Jesus, but could you make an exception? 
It's not saying, I'm, I'm not to pray for unsaved people. That's not what it's saying. If I see someone who is, who is, who is maybe an atheist or, or a different uh, religion other than believing in Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, it doesn't say that I don't pray for their salvation. It's saying, okay, uh, he believes in another way to heaven, God, but would you forgive him anyways? I know he's trying to get to you another way than other than Jesus, but would you please forgive him? Think of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They didn't know what they did. He didn't say, uh, hey, take them to heaven anyway, even though they're, they don't understand, they're not going to put their faith in me. He was praying for forgiveness of what they'd done to him personally. And so as a Christian, John says, I want you to pray for, for people, but if they pray, if they sin that sin that leads to death, that sin of rejecting Christ, don't ask God to forgive them. Because the only way that there is forgiveness is through Jesus. But he says, if you see a brother sin, a sin that is not unto death, that would naturally be all the other sins that God can forgive, that will forgive. He says, pray for him and he'll give you, God will give that person life for that. Now, like I said, there, I think there's a lot more there to it uh, that, uh, that, that we, I have not understood and, and, and uh, wouldn't try to deep dive into any deeper than that just because I would be in, in um, dangerous territory and to try to interpret the scriptures that I don't completely understand further than that. But, what God is, but what John is saying there, that we have this uh, forgiveness of sins. I'm sorry, we have this understanding that God will forgive the sins as long as it's not the one sin of rejecting Christ. So, really, God will forgive everything except for not believing in His Son. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? All right. So we, we see that number one, God, uh, because I know Jesus, I know that I have eternal life. Number two, I uh, because I know Jesus, God hears me when I pray according to His will, and I receive the things that I pray for. Number Number four, and this goes along with what we just talked about. Verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, it's not saying that Christians never commit sin. He that, he that is born of God sinneth not. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if we're to be honest, and if I were to ask you to raise your hand, and you were going to be honest and raise your hand and say, how many of you have sinned since you became a Christian? We'd all raise our hands. Deacons would be raising their hands twice, and the pastor raising raising uh, three feet and, uh, and and two arms. and figure that out. But uh, you know, the, the, we we all sin. It's not saying that if you're a Christian, you'll stop sinning. But it, what it is saying, we've seen several verses before that if you're a Christian, you won't continue in that sin. You, John John told us earlier, you can't sin because you're born of God. You can't continue in that because you're you have a new DNA in you. There's something different about the way that you behave. And yet you're going to mess up. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to sin. You're going to, you're going to, sometimes you're going to blatantly do things that you know you shouldn't do. But a true child of God won't continue in that path. He says, in, in fact, what he, what he, uh, so, so not, not, not that a Christian never commits sin, but that they won't continue in sin. You can look in chapter 2 and verse 1 again if you want to see that. But notice what it says instead. He says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but... He that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So I won't continue in sin, but rather I will keep myself, protect myself against sin. We saw that in chapter 3 and verse 3, when John said, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, God, is pure. Some would say that the believer is keeping himself. And Jude, verse 21, tells us uh, to keep yourselves in the love of God. I'm, I'm right there, so I'm going to say, is keep yourselves in the love of God. 
And then others would say, no, no, Jesus is keeping the believer safe. And they would use Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Regardless, a bit of a, a, bit of a technicality here, through the power of God, with the help of God, as a Christian, I'm not going to continue in sin. And John says, we know that. Now it's interesting because that this verse seems to answer a question that was brought up with previous verses. In the previous verses that was talking about, if you see a brother sin a sin, that's unto death, don't pray for him. And they think, well, if he's a brother, how can he sin a sin that's not unto death? How, how can you reject Jesus? Can, can a Christian reject Jesus? And what John says here is that, is that remember that a true Christian will not continue in sin. If someone among us rejects Jesus, he may be like those that he mentioned in chapter 2 who went out from us because they never really were of us. And so John says here, if I am a Christian, if I am uh, born of God because I know Jesus, I won't continue in sin. Number, number five, number, verse 19, we know that we are of God. Really, number five, six, and seven kind of come all together. And so we'll, we'll uh, kind of squish all these together because they all make sense in as one. I am of God. It's the security of knowing that though I live in the world, I am not of this world. I am of God. It's the security of knowing that as John 4, 4 tells me that greater is he who is in me than he that is in this world. As I look around the world and I see all of the, 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 just the, the horrible mess that our world is in. God says, remember, you're not of this place. You're of God. And in chapter 5 and verse 4, in Jesus I overcome that world. It's an incredible confidence as a Christian because I know who Jesus is. I have a confidence to live this life down here. It's not hopeless. I can walk with, with, with strength. I can walk with courage. I can walk knowing I'm an overcomer. It's not a pride. It's not I'm better than everybody else. And it's not feeling like I'm invincible and nothing can touch me. But it is saying that I have a security because I know to whom I belong. Then he says in verse number 20, he says, we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him. That is true. So 6 and 7, again, they go together. We know, number 6, that the Son of God has come. Now remember again, this was written to Jews. Many of the Jews of this day and age, and many of uh, this, this day in John, and many of the Jews even still today, do not believe that the Messiah has come. And so John is writing to Jews saying, we know that the Messiah has come. Because we know who Jesus is, we know who the Messiah is, and we believe that he has come. We as believers know that Christ, Jesus, is the Christ. And he says now, because of that, I know, verse number 20, he's, not only do I know that he's come, but I know that he's given me an understanding to know him that is true. So the last thing, Jesus has given me an understanding to know God. I know him who is true. Because I am in Him who is true. Jesus the Son, the true God. And I know that God has come, and I know that God. That's what Christmas is all about as we really head into the Christmas season. Christ has come. I really understand that. I believe that because I know who Jesus is. It's not that Jesus is born. It's that God came. God with us. Jesus means the Savior. Emmanuel, His name, God with us. God lives among us. And that's what John is saying, that I have, we have an understanding that 
We're not waiting anymore for Him to come. We're waiting for Him to come back. He already came once. He died. He paid for our sins. He's given us life. And now, and maybe to me, one of the greatest privileges of the Christian life, verse number 20, that He has given us an opportunity to know God. There's not, an, there's not an, a, a, a far off away distant God that I've learned about in the Scriptures and I can learn all about but never really get to know. He says you can know God. Very personal. We get to verse 21. The final exhortation to the reader. In light of knowing who Jesus is, in light of knowing that we have eternal life in Him and we have an understanding of God through Him and forgiveness of sins and all of these things, He finishes it off with this last little phrase that in a way sounds kind of weird and isolated all by itself, but it's really culminating all funneling down to this one statement. Because you know who Jesus is, keep yourselves from idols. What's an idol? An idol is anything that distracts me from God. An idol is anything that would take my focus away from the truth. Because I know who Jesus is, I should refrain from anything that is going to distract me from Him. Because it's all about Jesus. Anything that distracts me or pulls me away from Him is an idol. Exactly what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians when he said, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Anything that is going to exalt itself against God, against Jesus, cast that down. And I bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. Keep my thoughts right on Christ. John writes this letter, very concerned, older man, as he wrote it to a bunch of his own children, maybe the, the, maybe the converts that he had once reached or whatever, and as he wrote this entire, this entire book, it was all about one thing. Jesus. 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 You can't get more sophisticated. You can't get more enlightened. You can't get any higher than just Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And if you want to know more about the invisible God, you're going to look at Him through the image of Christ. We're Christians. We're heading into Christmas. Christ's birth. May we make sure this Christmas as we go into that best of holidays, maybe the only thing better than Christmas would be Easter as we recognize that the baby in the manger does nothing for my salvation, but the the resurrected Savior does everything. May we not get distracted by Santa, presents, gifts, cookies, holiday activities and, and, and events, and all of those things are wonderful things. May we make sure that we keep the focus on what it actually is. Jesus. Come December 26th, we get tired of hearing Christmas music, take all the stuff down, we throw that old rotten tree out, put our winter decorations up, leave the Christmas lights up because we're too lazy or it's too snowy to get out there. May we still be focused on just Jesus. As Christians, how I live my life should be focused through, filtered through my perspective 
of Jesus? How am I, how am I going to perform at work? How am I going to perform at school? How am I going to interact with my family in my community and all of the other aspects of my life? First and foremost, run it through the lens of Christ. I'm a Christian. Shouldn't that say something about how I live my life? Shouldn't that really determine how every other part of my life is lived out? Because I am a little Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ.